You are listening to the Data Point podcast, brought to you by the Hindu. I'm your host, Sonika Loganathan. Last month, the Assam government began an intense crackdown on child marriage. Within the first few days, the police arrested over 3,000 people in connection to cases where a girl was married before she turned 18, which is the legal age of marriage for a woman. Child marriage was first legally banned in 1929 in an act that barred girls below the age of 14 and boys below the age of 18 from getting married. But of course, the practice continued in certain places and among certain communities. And if we put child marriage aside, we generally see that people prefer women to get married earlier rather than later. But here's what my team wanted to find out. Is education or wealth a greater determinant of when a woman gets married? When we look at data from the National Family and Health Survey 5, we see that across several generations, how educated a woman is plays a bigger role in when she gets married rather than wealth. And this is a pattern that we saw over several decades. So the role of education here has been significant for quite some time. To get a better understanding of what the data found, I would recommend looking at the data point story corresponding with this podcast. The link to it is in the description. To expand on these findings and to understand the complexities and nuance behind how marriage works in Indian communities, I spoke to two experts in the field. Mary E. John is a professor at the Center for Women's Development Studies and the author of Child Marriage in an International Frame, a feminist review from India. And Rajni Palriwala is a former professor of sociology at the University of Delhi. So while the data shows us that education trumps wealth, I wonder how these two determinants play out in different contexts and whether these are the top two factors that we should be looking at. Mary said that the factors that affect marriage age are really vast and complex. I would say that we should use data, we should use statistical figures, more like clues rather than using them as facts. Right? They're clues for further thought. And the data point analysis that we're referring to was very interesting. It provided median ages of marriage at different educational levels and at different levels of socio, uh, you know, economic status from the poorest to the, to the better off. And they did so in terms of older and younger cohorts. And what I found most interesting in this data is that educational levels have a longer history of being significant. And I would use the word significant rather than determining. The word determining seems to, you know, it's playing a far too strong, it's a too strong a word to understand something as complex as what are the sets of factors that affect or that are significant. So yes, education has a longer history of being significant. And especially if you notice the move from high school, from secondary education to tertiary, that is to going beyond high school to college. The prevalence of higher levels of education has also increased significantly over the past 20 to 30 years. In fact, Mary says that since a high school student can still be 16 or 17 years old, if there's nothing for her to pursue further, marriage becomes a pressure both for her and her family. This means that even if a girl does finish high school, she may still be getting married below the age of 18 or right at the legal age. 
But when a woman has attained some level of higher education, marriages below the age of 18 practically disappear. On the other hand, Mary says that the significance of economic status is something that has been increasing over time. When it comes to wealth or poverty, depending on how you want to talk about economic status from the poorest uh, to the to the best of, it's a more recent history. So the significance of economic status has been increasing over time. Earlier, even better off families may have been marrying their daughters at younger ages. Today, we see a much more heavy concentration of younger median ages at marriage amongst the very poor. So depending on how you interpret this data, you could say that whereas education has had a steady influence, poverty has had an increasing influence. So rather than say what is greater, what is top, I would say, you know, a better uh, nuanced analysis would say over time, the better off in terms of wealth are no longer marrying their daughters. It no longer works for their marriage market amongst the very poor. It continues. In fact, it is a very strong factor. Rajni goes a step beyond Mary's point that poverty is becoming an increasing influence. Poverty is the greatest determinant of early marriage, of lack of access to education, to physical safety, and hence it's a push to get girls married young. It's uh, the poor also do not want to wait till uh, in terms of a marriage market where more dowry will be demanded. One of the things which we keep in mind in terms of the wealthy is that it may increase up to a point and then not increase because the wealthy, even more than the poor, need to control the young. And a delayed marriage always endangers that. And Rajni, what do you mean by controlling the young? Amongst the wealthy, the importance of community, of I mean, community and family are important across the board, but for the wealthy, community and family is even more important in terms of their self uh, ideas, their, their, their perceptions of self, their status, um, their uh, sort of general place within the community and the idea that if you're powerful and wealthy and you can't control your young, then how will you do anything else is something which you will often hear being spoken of. And uh, as a result, even more than, you know, I mean, no, that's not true, not even more than, but they need to control both their sons and daughters. The daughters make a wrong marriage, their uh, place in the community gets questioned. The son makes a wrong marriage, their whole future in terms of, of how the family's enterprise, different things will go, will get um, questioned and uh, endangered. And each marriage of a child affects the marriage of the next children. This would have been much truer historically. You know, so if we can look at the actual institution of marriage, I think then we get a better sense of this. The norms that were historically uh, affecting age at marriage were much stronger across communities. Uh, in the past. And the effects of uh, modernization, education, urbanization, you name it, has been kicking in over time. And the marriage markets have been changing accordingly, such that what is the right age at marriage for both men and women has been affected over time as a consequence of this kind of modernization. So apart from social reform and so on. So 
uh, yes, there would be small proportions. So the proportion of those who are amongst the better off, most of them would be probably in rural contexts who would still, and in certain regions of the country, like say Rajasthan would come to mind, which has had a longer history of child marriage amongst both men and women. So uh, here you might say that amongst, and especially amongst disadvantaged uh, castes, um, and uh, you would find uh, in rural areas, there would still be smaller proportions though than before, who for reasons of, yes, wanting to maintain control over land, control over assets, control over the family lineage, would also wish to somehow, you know, shape their, the marriage choices of their, of their children. So in rare cases, we find that young women are possibly being betrothed even before they have finished their education. So you will find in certain uh, castes, like amongst the Gujars, for instance, in Rajasthan, you will find examples of betrothals where the woman after marriage continues with her education after marriage because the family would like to see her have this as part of her qualification for that marriage. They may belong to higher levels in terms of economic status, but if you feel a sense of disadvantage socially, even if economically you're not amongst the poorest, you may still feel that, you know, for purposes of control in a context that is changing so rapidly and where young people have new ideas, you may want to go ahead with a betrothal even before the age of 18. This is the thing. Marriage, especially in the Indian context, can't really be discussed without bringing in several different factors. Marriage isn't just about bringing two people together. It plays several socioeconomic roles and exists in varied socioeconomic and political contexts. Marriage is embedded, we would say, in a political and cultural economy, okay, which means it's structured by factors much beyond marriage. It's structured by class, it's structured by caste, it's structured by the political dynamics between communities, between families, etc. That's really what we need to talk about because what I find limiting in the current concern over age at marriage alone is that it sounds as though and the claims that are being made that this alone is the single most important issue that is affecting women's life chances. And we are not looking at the institution of marriage uh, as such. We're not placing it in the, in the necessary context. And so we're missing, I think, very basic perspectives of what I call in my work compulsory marriage. And by compulsory marriage, I don't mean forced marriage. I mean the fact that it is the single most uh, significant institution in the lives of women and also of men. But whereas a daughter being born in a family uh, means for that family that their responsibility ends with her marriage, and that is their duty, that is their responsibility to this very day. When it comes to sons, it is in terms of settling them in a job, which in turn will also hopefully lead to a marriage. Mary says that marriage as an institution is overburdened. She explains that marriage plays four critical roles. One, economic security. Women's primary economic security is to be found in a marriage. This again is itself made up of many levels and layers from payments like dowry, to other kinds of you know, expectations in terms of what the family will bring to the marriage and what her uh, domestic duties will be and where in this list of economic expectations her work and paid work even plays a role or not. Two, social identity. An unmarried woman, a woman who remains single, continues to be an anomaly 
in our context because we have near universal marriage, unlike most other parts of the world. Uh, being single in in the fullest sense of the term of not wishing to marry is still a very tiny proportion. So while age at marriage has been creeping upwards, the proportion of women who are single has not been declining in the same way, which we would have expected to happen over time. Three, sexual respectability. I'm saying that we do have plenty of uh, sex, sexual relationships happening outside of marriage. I don't think we are very different in that respect, but they are not, they're not normative. They're not allowed to be acceptable. Okay. So those who wish to see sexual, rep, want to be respectable, will, will wish to have sexual relationships within marriage. And for the option to have children. Other parts of the world, again, not just the first world, but also, you know, parts of Africa or South America have norms that allow for women who are not in marriage relationships to nonetheless have children and bring them up. Today, in fact, in, in countries like Britain, um, half the children that are born in Britain are born outside of marriage across, across classes. So a woman may decide at some point in life that she wants to have a child without having a husband. So in our context, this is completely unacceptable. Even amongst us so-called more liberal people, we do not uh, have children outside marriage. And marriage in India is very much tied up with the expectation of having children. Rajni also adds that... What is very critical here, we have to keep in mind, is that in India, still, most marriages are caste and community endogamous. That is, you must marry within your caste. If and not, maybe less so within your subcaste, but still largely within your subcaste. You must marry within the community. You must marry with within taking into account various community rules. And this is central to maintaining caste and community lines and maintaining caste and community hierarchy. So when I talked about the wealthy needing to control their children, it's also about this, that status within the community means you show that you have done the absolutely right marriage. In terms of the gender dimensions, Marriage, by and large, outside a few communities, means that the woman goes to live with her husband's family or is seen as becoming a member of her husband's family and is supposed to may continue to have links with her parental family, but less so, which means she has to go and live within the power dynamics of that home. She has to adjust there. She has to take care of the parents. Marriage as an institution is necessary to also maintain that gender contract. And remember, if sons are the sort of the future of the family, the clan, the community, but also the old age pension of the parents, parents want to say in their son's marriage also, in who the daughter-in-law will be. And that is also where not just marriage as an institution, but arranged marriage as an institution becomes important. You know, often this discussion around um, age at marriage forgets two things, I think, which are very important. One, that marriage is not only of a girl, but also of a boy, of a young man. So one has to look at what's happening there. The other is that despite all this about marriage as an institution and control of elders, young boys and girls, especially as age is increasing, have desires. There is a desire not just in terms of, you know, there's a love for the parents, but there's also a desire for sexual experience or a sexual relationship, sexual happiness. 
Now, with this context in mind, how does education have an impact on a woman and her individual choice? So while we know that marriage cannot be boiled down to one or two factors, the data and arguments by activists and scholars does point to education having a significant role to play when it comes to women's empowerment. So as the number of women who have access to education rises, is this resulting in women having more quote-unquote control over when they decide to get married? Rajni says, There's a long way to go. That's the short answer. But if I was to say a little more, you know, first, what we have to keep in mind in, to ensure the maintenance of caste and community and family and all of that, the match has to be very carefully monitored. And it has to take place at a time when the young are not just emotionally attached to the parents, but dependent on them, hence obedient. If you're going to think of autonomy, and if you're going to think of the institution of marriage, what we have to keep in mind is that, okay, there's an institution of marriage, but the marriage market is not uniform across caste, class, community. It's deeply segmented by caste, by wealth, uh, by urban, rural, and by gender. So, and we, girls and women don't grow up outside the ideas of that segmentation. So when we talk about choice, women are not sort of, girls are not suddenly sort of outside their socialization and then making choices, okay? They will also be going along with what they have learned. Now, at the same time, it's true, very definitely, that relative to the past, more girls and boys also um, are asked about, okay, how does this match suit you? How does that match suit you? Uh, they may actually see each other, which in the past they didn't, but they may not see each other more than once. They may not get to make, you know, be too detailed in terms of what they would like. But yes, they are asked. What's also a factor at times people suggest, but does not seem to actually operate, is that because of various factors, we know that there's an adverse sex ratio in India. Okay. And that there are fewer girls for boys to marry. But because of this hierarchical marriage market, it doesn't mean that girls get more choice at all. It just means that boys may find it more difficult to find a, a wife if they're poor, if they're not educated, they don't have jobs. But girls may not get any more choice. Critical over here is also dowry. Okay? It remains central. And in fact, when we look at the question of wealth, so the wealthy can give dowry, but they don't want to have to give too much dowry. And the more the education of the girl, the more the boy has to be educated and the higher the dowry goes. So that factor comes in. See, one of the things in the marriage market which has not changed is it remains extremely segmented, as I've said. It remains hierarchical. We talk of hypergamy, which means the girl should marry up. Okay, Those features you see remaining. Now, if the girl is going to marry up, that becomes a way to ask for more dowry. So one way one can see is that dowry has not um, declined the idea of the necessity of dowry, except amongst very small groups. And it has spread to groups where it wasn't the practice earlier. 
In fact, Rajni says that the sex ratio and increasing dowry demands are among the top reasons why families try to get their daughters married at a young age. And then there's the responsibility of protecting her sexually. When she turns 15 and is nubile and sexually vulnerable, so that is one reason why the advantage which families see in terms of getting their daughters married earlier that the responsibility of protecting her sexually and the responsibility of keeping their status because she has not been sexually harmed gets transferred to the boy's family. But critically, as I said, after marriage in most communities, the girl goes to live with her husband's family. And there are sayings which say, why water somebody else's garden? Why spend on her education when in any case she is going to go somewhere else and live there? And, you know, despite government schools, etc., education does cost money. And, um, okay, if she's married, then, you know, she can come and go more easily without them having the responsibility to take care of her, both sexually and in terms of costs. Despite all of this, If marriage was a means for economic security, couldn't educated women attain this by themselves now because they are increasingly empowered with education? Mary says that while we do have very strong links between education and marriage, we don't have a strong understanding and link between women's work, specifically paid work, and marriage. We have a very peculiar pattern of employment for women. I say peculiar because it doesn't follow uh, trends elsewhere. First of all, it's been low. and There are now finally uh, the Economic Survey and the World Bank and various important institutions in India and abroad are recognizing this very low. I think 25% is the most recent figure for paid work for women, which is less than half of what it should be. Not only is it low, but it is declining or it has been fluctuating from uh, in this low level. And those who are the sufferers in this uh, situation are also amongst the disadvantaged. So you will have small pockets of the better off amongst us who find careers or who gain a foothold in some of the newer, uh, you know, the malls and the finance sector and the media sectors where women are visible. But these are very, very small in terms of numbers. Otherwise, we are seeing job losses in which women are the biggest losers. And this has been uh, discussed in the literature. But what has not actually been brought together is looking at these patterns and then looking at ages at marriage uh, and marriage as an institution. So broadly speaking, if you have low and declining employment rates, gainful employment rates, you are going to see a greater proportion of burden on marriage as an economic security. If you cannot depend on, on, on gainful employment as, as a good job, where are you going to go? So, so yes, ages at marriages are going up. Yes, attainment levels are really going up. There's been such an expansion in access to education, but what after? My question, so in many, many contexts I've been asking, and in my own work, I've been asking this question, what happens after when we have these, we now have near parity uh, in our colleges uh, when it comes to undergraduate degrees? Does it translate into anything remotely in terms of greater access to jobs? No, I can't say that. And we still see a pattern where 
Um, in rural India, there are higher levels of women working for pay in very onerous jobs like agricultural labor, cultivators. And in urban India, we still see a concentration of women in employment in paid domestic work and in primary school teaching. So where are we then? You know, we are looking at a very high proportion of the what are called the educated unemployed amongst women. And we also have uh, experiences, though I think we need more, more data on this, of women discovering, even when they do enter, the ones who uh, enter the private sector, say the corporate sector, we hear stories of women who then actually leave these sectors, who find these workplaces hostile, who find that they are unable to combine the domestic expectations they have that, that are there on them in their homes with the work demands on them in the workplace. And so they withdraw. And the kind of expectations there are, even amongst the very, maybe especially amongst the very educated, to perform very elaborate functions as mothers and caretakers and managers of their homes, their children. So many, many educated women with professional degrees even are primarily engaged in this kind of labor, which I think should be recognized but isn't. So Mary says that the result of this is that the marriage market is getting shaped by this less-than-satisfactory employment scenario. Rajni adds that while education levels may be rising, and those in certain marriage markets may be looking for more educated women, the discussion remains surface-level. I think important thing here, which is we are often missing, is it's not quite a question of just the autonomy to choose who you will marry. We often don't look beyond the immediate sort of exterior features of the match and the wedding. What about the marital relationship? There we see very little change in the conjugal contract. There is very little autonomy for girls and for women. Even the most um, educated possibly find that, you know, the entire domestic burden, the owners of adjustment of children, all remains on the woman. And the man is still assumed to have the power to determine where, how, what the family should be, etc. So the question is whether that increasing age at marriage enables women to change that conjugal contract. Do they have autonomy there? Which brings out Mary's point that it's a very narrow focus when we are going on and on about child marriage and we are going on and on about underage marriage as the single most harmful thing that is happening. And uh, I think there's a we're very short-sighted here if we don't put this in a larger context and if we then were to assume, that to my mind is the most problematic of them all, if we were to assume that merely a higher age of marriage would automatically lead to more empowerment, more autonomy, more freedom, then we are making a mistake. So are there any reasons that a family might want to delay their educated daughter's marriage or see some kind of advantage there? Both experts say that there's no straightforward answer. Rajni says, Remember, women's employment rates in India are amongst the lowest. So women are, despite all the apparent new uh, areas of employment, in fact, women's employment rates have gone down. So women are not possible earning members, one. Two, if women are trained to, you know, become earning members, remember very soon that earnings will not be with their parents. 
but there are two factors which would lead them to delay it. Yes, there are families whose daughters, you know, get into little small jobs. They're bringing in some income. They're earning maybe their own dowry. Okay, so you delay it for them to earn their dowry or they're helping in terms of the education of their siblings. So that can be a delay. But beyond the point, then it becomes counterproductive because then they have to earn that much more dowry. Then there's all those things. But yes, amongst some, that will be the case. But there's also a very strong idea amongst most communities that parents should not live off their daughter's income. This is like a sin almost. When they delay their daughter's marriage, one, they'll say she's earning her own dowry. Two, that is at times where the daughter does show some autonomy and insists that I am going to support my siblings. I'm going to support you. I'm going to earn my dowry. And um, hence... And then the parents sort of agree uh, to it. But as I said, it's beyond up to a point. Amongst, there's another factor which comes in why they would delay it is that they do want a high status marriage for their daughters because that gives them also status. They also then, uh, you know, as I said, marriage is marrying up. When you marry up, the upness of the people your daughter marries into reflects on you. And it may be in terms of wealth, which demands more dowry. It may be in terms of where they live. It may be in terms of the boy's profession and the boy's occupation. And generally boys with a good professional job, good education, will themselves say they want a wife who is also being able, who has that education or who can also be an earner, they will hope. So that also becomes a reason to delay the daughter's marriage. Both, they think the daughter will have a better marriage. She'll be married to a professional and educated person. Things might be, you know, everyone has the hope that the educated person will be treated better. They don't realize that domestic violence is very high amongst the educated and the middle class, etc. But their hope is there. So both for the daughter's uh, better life and for their status, they will look for a more better status marriage, which can mean delaying her marriage and which means, again, delaying the marriage if she is in education, if she is. Otherwise, she's sitting at home and there's the danger of, you know, what that sort of empty minds is a, are a devil's workshop, that sort of idea she might get involved with people. So, yes, if she's busy with other things, they will delay because of the other benefits. Now, this discussion has, to a large extent, centered around a more urban context, or at least one where communities have some level of privilege. But we cannot overlook the data around SC, SD, and OBC communities. The median age range among SC, SD, OBC women was below 20 even among younger generations, while the age crossed 20 for women from non-SC, SD, OBC backgrounds. Rajni said a major reason for this overarching issue is poverty, but also the disproportionate levels of violence that girls from these communities face. When we talk of Dalits, we talk of Adivasis, we talk of OBCs, 
there is quite a fair deal of correlation between that caste and poverty, lack of decent work, um, vulnerability to violence from those higher in the hierarchy and um, the powerful around them. So all of these factors mean that girls in these communities are even more vulnerable. And Dalit girls, in particular, if you focus on Dalits, but also Adivasis, they also go out of the house compound to work the way in which the upper caste girls will rarely do. They may go at the most to family farms. Here, Dalit girls may go elsewhere. They are much more vulnerable to sexual predators as a result because they're going, because the young upper caste men feel that they have a right of access and uh, because, again, they can't afford education because it means not just the cost of education, but then the girls being withdrawn from household work and um, agricultural work. So all of these become factors in Dalits and Adivasis, OBCs, getting their daughters married earlier. It's some sort of marriage is a sort of protection for the girls. Mary agreed, adding that once again, there are several factors at play here. So caste can't exactly be looked at in an isolated way. So this is where um, I come back to the concern that we should think of these figures as clues. We should think of factors as complex. We should re recall that in, even though when we try to analyze economic status, educational status, caste identity, community identity, rural urban location. We are trying to disaggregate, separate, separate out different factors that constitute who we are. We are a combination of all of these put together and these factors also interact with each other. So in our efforts at analysis, we try to disaggregate. We try to say, okay, if everything else were equal, if, if you took if, if you equalized across poverty, if you equalized across uh, education, what role might caste be playing? Uh, the figures that the data point uh, provided are not of that nature. They are not what we would call a regression figure where you control for other factors. It's simply a figure, which means that it's a figure that also includes the fact that disproportionately poverty kicks in amongst lower castes. So upper castes are disproportionately present amongst the better off and the lower castes are disproportionately represented amongst the poor. So disadvantage in social and economic terms comes together when we talk about the SCs, STs and OBCs. They, they're, they're families who belong to these groups experience the sense of being socially disadvantaged in the marriage market, in social life, in terms of vulnerability of their daughters, to possible you know, uh, action on the part of upper caste. And we have any number of stories of what happens in, in especially in rural contexts. So they grow up with those kinds of fears, but they also grow up quite simply being poorer. These are the poorer classes. So if you were to go back to your economic quintiles, you would find that you go to the lower quintiles. These are disproportionately SC, ST and OBC. They're the ones who are sitting there. And if you go to the upper quintiles, they will be disproportionately upper caste. So a combination of social disadvantage and economic disadvantage will give you the result that you see, which is 
that they will then be part of a marriage market where you want to settle the pressures to settle the marriage at a slightly earlier age will be kicking in more so than for an upper caste family who can afford to wait longer and for whom it makes more sense for for whom an underage marriage wouldn't make any sense because you're in a marriage market at a different level where those levels of education and so on are part of that marriage market so ultimately while education does play a major role in determining when a woman gets married poverty plays a bigger one in a way that is intertwined with so many different societal and economic norms needs and expectations we make the mistake at times of thinking that girls will just immediately imbibe all the ideas which are good for them for autonomy etc but they grow up in their society in their community etc and they grow up with the idea that not just that the parents will marry them well but this is the sort of marriage we want with dowry with various other sort of trappings the wedding is the one time they given so much importance and this actually runs across the board girls for at the time of the wedding the jewelry the clothes the centrality of them in the thing it's something they yearn they may not think of that you know okay this has long term effects they see the immediacy and it's you know it's not we see it sort of across the board how much time people spend on that wedding which is going to be you know when you go higher up in the hierarchy that wedding is which is supposedly if you have a wonderful wedding you'll have a wonderful marriage now you know maybe but not necessarily so that's it for this week's episode but i'll be back soon to unpack the next big data story You can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and all other major streaming platforms. You can also check out our data point stories at thehindu.com/data. Thanks for listening.